Hello, I'm Jan Leeming, and this is my search for René Mouchotte. My quest for René Mouchotte began at Cape Laferne near Folkestone in Kent, site of the iconic Battle of Britain Memorial, opened in 1993 by Her Majesty the late Queen Mother. It was a very windy day and the helicopter pilot suggested they turn back. Her Majesty reportedly responded, Our boys never turned back, we will carry on, which rather set the scene for subsequent events. In 2005, His Royal Highness Prince Michael of Kent unveiled the Sir Christopher Foxley Norris Memorial Wall in honour of the late Air Chief Marshal Sir Christopher, one of the few himself and a long-serving chairman of the exalted Battle of Britain Fighter Association, membership of which is exclusively restricted to the few. The wall is inscribed with just under 3,000 names of the RAF aircrew known to have fought in the Battle of Britain between the 10th of July and 31st of October 1940. No ranks or decorations are included on the wall and names are in alphabetical order. In July 2007, I received, out of the blue, an invitation to the annual Battle of Britain Memorial Day at the Memorial organised by the BOB Memorial Trust, which is also responsible for maintenance and management of this special site. I had no idea what a great occasion this is, rightly commemorating the few and their achievement in saving Britain from invasion, but I attended anyway. On the day, there were 25 of the few present, laying wreaths around the memorial, a statue of a pilot seated and gazing across the channel, where so many aerial combats occurred. The statue is surrounded by the badges of all the RAF fighter command squadrons and appended units which took part in the battle, and is at the centre of a huge three-bladed propeller marked out on the ground. On the luncheon table was more information about the memorial and some sponsorship forms. I like to pay my way, and as an invited guest, thought the least I could do was pay to sponsor a name. Not long afterwards, I received a note from Janet Tootle, wife of the Battle of Britain Memorial Trust's hard-working honorary secretary, Group Captain Patrick Tootle, asking which name I would like to sponsor. To my knowledge at that time, none of my own family members were in the RAF, although I later discovered Two distant Atkins family relations are commemorated on the Runnymede Memorial to missing British and Commonwealth aircrew. So, having French heritage, I asked for a French name. There are 13 free French names on the wall, and I could have been allocated any of them. Randomly, but fortuitously as things turned out, I was allocated the name of René Mouchot, and naturally, after a professional lifetime of interviewing and researching, was eager to find out more, if any information existed, about this total stranger. Was I in for a surprise? Up came René's name on a Google search, and the fact that he'd written diaries during the war, purely for his personal memoirs, which were published post-war. René, I discovered, was killed in action flying Spitfires during a raid on the huge concrete bunker being constructed at Epilec in the Pas de Calais, 
from which it was proposed to launch deadly V-2 rockets at England on the 27th of August 1943. Rennie's mother, however, only learned the truth of his death at the time of the liberation. She had previously continued to hope that he somehow remained alive, despite still being officially posted missing in action. She gave her son's diaries, sketches, photographs, press cuttings, medals, citations, and his pilot's flying logbook to family friend André Deserrois, with the words, Here is all I have left of him. Will you read it? Will you publish it? Deserrois hesitated, asking, Have we the right to publish? Mouchot had not, after all, written his personal diaries with publication in mind. Recently returned from Germany's prisons and torture camps, the great French resistance leader, Colonel Hertaud, gave Desarrois his answer. The diaries are not literature. They contain love of country, the heart of a fighter pilot, a leader's soul. The sons of France need the nourishment they have to give. Consequently, the diaries were published in France in 1949 and in 1956 appeared as an English translation. I just had to have a copy and duly found one on the internet, expecting it to be a book more for men with a gung-ho attitude to war. What I found was a sensitive story of a man wedded to duty, determined to fight on after his beloved France capitulated to the Germans. He writes of his French comrades being killed and watching helpless as his best friend keeled over and disappeared into the sea while on a convoy protection patrol. He, Charles Guérin, was blinded by the effect of a glycol leak, the vapour enveloping his aircraft there were many glycol leaks later found to be sabotage. René writes too with considerable humour and much humility over his accomplishments and always there is a huge display of love for his mother, family and homeland. I have read Mes Carnets as the original French edition was entitled seven times and on every occasion I've been moved to tears. I am a romantic, pure and simple, and decided I would source a copy of the original diaries in French. Finding a copy in an antiquarian bibliothèque in Belgium, I sent off the very reasonable sum of 10 euros plus postage and soon received a copy with, would you believe, a little calling card stuck inside the cover to a Monsieur Madame Griset thanking them and sending her best wishes from Madame O. Mouchot. Perhaps she had visited and given them a copy of the diaries as a gift. What are the chances of that happening and that book ending up in my possession? I didn't realise then, though, that I was on a mission, and the more delving I did, the more I discovered, and the more deeply moved I became throughout the years ahead. I'm honoured to have been invited to the Battle of Britain Memorial Day every year since 2007. In 2008, after the ceremony and laying of wreaths by the surviving few, air attaches from Commonwealth countries and various civic dignitaries, 
families and friends walk to the Foxley Norris wall and we lay our tributes. As I was placing mine, a gentleman said, what's your association with the Battle of Britain? Responding that I was researching the story of René Mouchot and eventually hoped to have a television documentary made, the gentleman introduced himself as Wing Commander Tom Neal, one of the few, a wartime fighter ace and an author. Tom told me that together with his lovely wife Eileen, he'd served with René at Biggin Hill. Eileen told me René was a very reserved and intense man. This was incredible. I couldn't believe that I was actually talking to people who had personally known my hero, as he'd now become. That link created a friendship between the Neils and myself, which lasted until their deaths. I regularly wrote on my website about my search for and appealing for any information on René. In March 2011, I was contacted by one Mark Chapman, who told me that his father had worked with René as ground crew. We met for coffee and I learned a great deal more about the man I felt I was beginning to know, albeit posthumously. Mark's father had written a very interesting but unpublished work on his years of service and in which he described René as a great man to work for, strict but fair, exceedingly generous and who encouraged and befriended everyone on his team, regardless of rank, role or status. Mark also showed me a lapel badge given to his father by René from the aero club Jean Mermoz, of which René was a member. Many years later, the Mouchot family gave me another of these little badges, once belonging to René, which I naturally treasure. In early May 2011, I went with a friend to Biggin Hill, one of our most famous wartime fighter stations, where Rennie had served, in addition to various other airfields across the country. I saw mess menus for special dinners signed by Rennie, his name carved on the Reredos in the Chapel of Remembrance, and most poignantly, his name inscribed in the Book of Remembrance, which is opened every Sunday and shows the names of those who died for their country on that day. After visiting the chapel, we crossed the main road to the housing estate, which previously accommodated military personnel and since sold off by the MOD for private use, or most of it had been. As I crouched to take a photo of Mushot close, a man jogged by and demanded to know what I was doing on MOD property. I blurted out my explanation that I was researching René Mouchot. His attitude immediately changed and he, Colonel John Powell, invited my companion and me into his home for a cup of tea. His poor wife was hanging out the washing when she was suddenly having to make tea for two total strangers. It transpired that only a small part of the area had been retained by the military and service families were housed there when their menfolk were posted overseas on active service. Apparently, the Mushot diaries were given to any newcomers to Mushot clothes. John and his wife Claire and I remained in touch over developments in the story and then he was posted to Gibraltar. Also that same month, May 2011, Friends in Paris invited me to stay. 
I adore France and Paris in particular, so was keen to take up the invitation and to spend time trying to find out more about René Mouchot. By this time, I knew that when René was killed, 27th of August, 1943, his last words were, I am alone with the bombers. Radio contact with him was lost, although back at base, all were hoping that he might have bailed out of his Spitfire and there was a chance he could be picked up in the channel. Hope, sadly, eventually died. Grown men were moved to tears. A week later, on the 3rd of September 1943, his body washed up on West End Plage in Belgium. In fact, during the course of the Second World War, the current carried the remains of over 90 poor souls, soldiers, sailors and airmen, onto that same beach. At the time, however, René's body was not identified correctly because his identity disc read R. Martin. Why was this? The Free French, of which René was one of the first, were condemned to death by the Germans if caught. In his diaries, René speaks humorously of what might happen if he were shot down and captured, adding that although no German would take him for an Englishman, they might, just might, think he was French-Canadian. Consequently, and indeed sensibly, he therefore assumed the identity of an RCAF man who had returned to Canada, one R. Martin, Martin, Martin. The families of free French servicemen and women were also liable to be persecuted by the Germans, so this was another vitally important reason for concealing true identities. René was buried in Middlekirk Cemetery and later moved to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission section, where he remained until 1949. Back to my French sojourn in May 2011. By this time, I knew that after an extensive search by Flight Lieutenant R.N. Archer and liaison with what was then the Imperial War Graves Commission, the body in Middlekirk Cemetery had been correctly identified as that of Commandant René Mouchot. One piece of clothing, his vest, actually had his real name printed on it and his remains had been taken back to France. He was then given a full military funeral at Les Invalides in Paris and interred in the Mouchot family tomb in Père Lachaise Cemetery on the northeast side of the city. So to Père Lachaise I went armed with a map and a reference number. It wasn't too difficult to find the Mouchot tomb on the corner of Avenue de la Chapelle. It was in very good condition and looked well cared for. In the centre, above the altar, was a photo of René and a memorial plaque. I've mentioned being a romantic and suddenly had an idea. People have placed messages in bottles and thrown them into the sea so why couldn't I leave a message in the tomb? My French is far from flawless, however, and as I had no writing materials, returned to my friends, wrote a letter in English, which they translated, and went back to the cemetery. The letter was placed down the side of the tomb near the door, and then I waited. Spurred on by knowing where René Mouchot was buried, I then decided to go to Belgium and to Dunkirk. In September 2011, a friend asked if I'd like to go over to France on a wine-buying day trip. 
The ferry was inexpensive and a decade ago it was worth the trip, except that we usually spent what we saved on the wine by having a lovely meal before returning. Asking if we could extend the trip up the coast, my friend readily agreed. During my search, I had ascertained there were various memorials to René all over France and knew there was one just north of Calais at the Aerogar Blériot, Dunkirk, which was on the way to Middlekirk in Belgium. Incidentally, it was from there that Blériot had set off to fly the channel on the 25th of July, 1909. When we arrived, I went into the small airport building just to make sure it was in order for me to take photos of the memorial. The entrance hall was being decorated and was devoid of any pictures or flight paraphernalia. The manager, hearing of my interest in Renimou shot, went into a back room and returned with a large infographic, including the stories of both Blériot and Mouchot, explaining it would be put back up when the redecoration was finished. I took a photograph of it and the memorial. When I visited again some years later, it was disappointing that the infographic remained not displayed, but still hidden away in the back office. It was then given to me, so I had it framed and it now adorns pride of place in my home. My friend and I continued our journey to Middlecourt Town Hall, where I knew a small memorial to René had been unveiled after the war in 1955. Again, not wanting to offend anyone and always mindful of rules, I inquired in the kiosk as to whether I could take photographs. The gentleman rose from his seat and came out. I thought he was going to evict us, but no. He told us to follow him and took us to a back office where he introduced us to a young man called Simon Vosters. It transpired that Simon was the very new and enthusiastic archivist of the town and miracle of miracles, he'd just been dealing with the Mooshot files, documenting the inauguration of the memorial. René's mother, sister and her children had attended. In addition to the memorial, the town mayor presented Madame Mouchot with a beautiful enameled plaque representing the memorial. The ceremony was documented in numerous black and white photos, which Simon kindly let me copy. Then he took us to Middlekirk Cemetery and showed us the small part which is reserved as the Commonwealth Wargrave Cemetery and in which Rennie's body had lain at rest for several years. I couldn't have been more grateful for all the help received and returned home with renewed confidence. In October 2011, my oldest friend Sue, who lives near Leeds, rang to let me know there'd been an item on the local news about the French at York Minster and a fly-past. Again, turning to the internet, I learned there'd been a dedication and unveiling of a plaque in York Minster to the Free French bomber crews stationed at RAF Elvington during the Second World War, the plaque being behind a very impressive memorial to the RAF. Apparently, when the French bomber boys were sent to Elvington, all 2,500 of them, the WAF were moved out. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's true, but apparently it was too much temptation with the French boys in their glamorous uniforms and all their gold braid. Joking aside, they did a superb job and the attrition rate for their crews was incredibly high. Researching Elvington, 
I saw it was still very much as it had been in wartime, with all the Nissen huts and turning pans for the bombers. Now it was the Yorkshire Air Museum, with a very impressive collection of aircraft and aviation artefacts, run by director Ian Reid. We began correspondence, which was to have a happy outcome. In November 2011, I received an email from Colonel Hubert Delisle, son-in-law of René's sister, Jacqueline Quentin Mouchot, apparently still alive and soon to celebrate her 101st birthday. My letter was found when the family visited the tomb on the 31st of October 2011, All Souls Day, when tradition dictates that Catholics visit the graves of their dear departed. Although born in France, Hubert, or Hubert, had spent most of his adult life in England and had been a guards officer, so he'd seen me often on television reading BBC News in the 1980s and appreciated that, as he said, I was bona fide. He invited me to meet Jacqueline, who apparently had received many approaches over the years with the promise of honouring her brother, none of which had come to fruition, much to Jacqueline's and the family's disappointment. The following month, December 2011, I hired a cameraman and set off for Paris on Eurostar to visit Jacqueline the day after her 101st birthday. Hubert and his wife, Marie-Dominique, took us to lunch in a traditional French bistro where we indulged in typical French fare, steak and frites. I had sent a list of questions in advance to Hubert so that he could prepare Jacqueline for our interview. My French is far from fluent, but I felt that if I kept to the script, we'd both know what we were doing. I understood most of Jacqueline's answers, and when we both floundered, Hubert was there to help. Jacqueline related the sad story of how René's mother learned of his death. Many French arranged to have a tin of sardines sent monthly to their families, don't ask me how they did it, to tell them they were still alive. Madame Mouchot was receiving her sardines, but she'd had a bad dream, a premonition, in which she saw René floundering in a stormy sea. The family were Catholic and had gone to Mass, leaving Madame Mouchot at home. A telegram arrived addressed to Madame Quentin Mouchot, which of course was meant for Jacqueline. In that missive, and all alone, his mother learned of René's death in action during 1943, when for all these years she thought him safely working for de Gaulle in an office in London, René having kept his true role from her. The family were living in unoccupied France during the war and had listened to BBC radio reports, which actually mentioned René, but only by the letter M. So René's mother remained in ignorance of his demise until that fateful telegram arrived. Jacqueline spoke so fondly of the brother she'd not seen for 70 years since he went off to war, remembering him as always laughing and kind. Being in Paris, I'd taken advantage of my French friend's hospitality and was staying with them for a couple of nights. Then I received an email from Ian Reid, director of the Yorkshire Air Museum, whom I'd not met but had corresponded with. 
He asked if I was still in Paris, and if so, would I like to accompany him to the funeral of Henri Lafont? Henri spent much time in the UK after the war and changed the spelling of his first name, originally Henri, because there was a French traitor with the same name as his, from which he naturally wanted to distance himself. Young Lafont, as René called him, had been one of the six French airmen on the stolen Cordon Gerland, which left Oran and flew to Gibraltar. The journey was hazardous, and the reader will doubtless recall from the diaries that the plane had difficulty taking off, with sabotage propellers locked in coarse pitch. All René had to guide him on that journey, in fact, was a map torn out of a geography book. But he made it and landed safely in Gibraltar, where a few days later he and his comrades boarded the armed trawler President Oudous bound for England. I was due to catch the six o'clock Eurostar that day, so there was time to attend the funeral. Ian and I met at the lodge entrance to Les Invalides, where we were able to deposit our luggage. On arriving at the chapel, now the National Cathedral of the French military, with typical old-fashioned British modesty, we positioned ourselves at the back, but were met by an official and led to the front, just one row behind the Lafont family. It was a Catholic service, after which the coffin was carried to the huge forecourt for a musical tribute and a gun salute. We found ourselves lined up behind a little placard reading Great Britain. Ian had been asked to attend by the British air attaché, who was unable to do so at such short notice. So we were there together, representing our country. Ian also noticed that of all the medals decorating the coffin, the British awards were missing. After the ceremony, we were introduced to a grandson of Maréchal Foch, to the French Air Force attaché and other dignitaries, and went off for a very interesting lunch. Ian was booked on the same Eurostar home, and I admit that I ear-bashed him about René for the whole journey. Ian had undertaken a great amount of research about the Free French bomber crews based at Elvington, but had not heard of René Mouchot. He was a fighter pilot. He certainly did after that journey. When I alighted at Ashford, I left him with my book of notes. Ian Reid is very knowledgeable about the Battle of Britain, and after his work to get a plaque to the Elvington bomber crews erected in York Minster, he had some valuable contacts in the RAF. He realised that none of the 13 Free French who took part in the Battle of Britain had received their DFCs or coveted Battle of Britain clasp to the 1939-45 star awarded only to the few. I suppose those who, who had survived had returned to France post-war where there were other more important issues, like locating the remains of those killed in action, so no medals had been awarded. Ian therefore set about remedying this omission and duly got the medals for the Mouchot and Lafont families. Jacqueline Quentin Mouchot, however, was very ill at Christmas 2011 and nearly died. Her son-in-law, Hubert Delisle, believes she only clung to life in order to receive the medals due to her brother. In June 2011, Ian and I went to Paris and presented the medals to Jacqueline. We showed her film clips of her brother at the prize giving for Biggin Hill's thousandth aerial victory, which René had shared with squadron leader Jack Charles. 
and also his presence, smiling and happy at the Grosvenor House Hotel Ball in London, celebrating the achievement. She wept and thanked us for bringing her brother back to her after 70 years. Sadly, Jacqueline died just weeks later. Over a year later, in July 2012, thanks to Ian Reid's connections, there was an official presentation of René's medals to his family in the British Ambassador's residence in Paris. We were honoured to be joined by Sir, now Lord, Peter Ricketts and the Chief of the Air Staff, Sir Stephen Dalton, who presented the medals, a DFC and the Battle of Britain clasp. Also included in this occasion were the family of Henri Lafont, who also received his British medals. A few days later, when Sir Stephen Dalton attended the Battle of Britain memorial service at Capel, he mentioned Mouchot and Lafont in his opening speech, thanking and recognising the few. I felt very proud of my part in sharing their story. Moving on to September 2012, as previously mentioned, there are 13 free French names on the Sir Christopher Foxley Norris Wall. After the presentation of medals to the families of Mouchot and Lafont, the other 11 families naturally wanted their loved ones medals. They too were presented at the British Ambassador's residence in Paris, but with not quite such fanfare as we'd received earlier in the year. Nonetheless, those families received medals due, which is the important fact. Over the years, I never gave up trying to get some television channel interested in the Mouchot story, which also has other interesting aspects to it. René's paternal great-grandfather, Jean-Pierre Duvelois, for example, founded a fan-making business in Paris in 1827, which became famous worldwide. Jean-Pierre being known as the King of Fans and Fan of Kings. Madame Mouchot sold the business to a Monsieur Maignan, who continued with the making of fans until the 1950s, when the business lapsed. Monsieur Maignan preserved fans, drawings, tools, materials and furnishings kept since the foundation of the House of Duvelois in 1827 and passed them on to his grandson in 1981. In 2010, two young Parisian women bought the collection and resurrected the Duvelois fan business in Paris. My project, however, was turned down by BBC Two, BBC Four and Yesterday, the latter having decided that René wasn't famous enough, demonstrating a complete ignorance of the actual facts and context of this free French Spitfire hero. I got bounced around between Biography Channel, who declared the subject to be military, the military channel told me it was history. History said it was for a biography channel. I also approached a few independent production companies. It's all so difficult these days. When I was younger and there were only three broadcasting channels, BBC One, BBC Two and ITV, if you had an idea for a programme, you sent it to the commissioning editor. If that exalted person thought the idea had legs, it would be passed down to producers, and if any of them felt there was an appeal, they would take the idea and run with it. Conversely, today we have a veritable plethora of hundreds of channels, and one is no longer allowed to directly approach commissioning editors. You have to do it through a production company, 
of which there are hundreds all doing their own thing. It also means that you really need to make a pilot program, no pun intended, outlining your idea. Unfortunately, I had neither the resources or contacts to do this. It is true, it's not what you know, but who you know. I was fortunate to meet a retired BBC director at a drinks party. I monopolised his time with my story of René, and fortunately it struck home. He, James Murray, knew the commissioning editor of BBC Southeast. I'd already done all the work, research, scripting, and paid for some filming. The commissioning editor approved, and a short piece was destined for inclusion in the local BBC programme, Inside Out. Every region has this outlet focusing on stories of local interest. Because René was based at Biggin Hill, and his name is on the Sir Christopher Foxley Norris Wall at the Battle of Britain Memorial at Capel Le Fern near Folkestone, both in Kent, his story qualified as local interest for the Southeast. I was subsequently allocated a delightful film crew. We shot film at Capel, Dunkirk, Westender, Middlekirk, and Paris, particularly at Père Lachaise Cemetery, where the only recently finished plaque to Jacqueline Quentin-Mouchot had been placed in the family tomb. Inserts into the Inside Out programme are usually of five minutes duration. However, the lovely producer Matthew Wheeler declared he simply couldn't edit the material below 15 minutes, adding that what he had in the can would easily have made a half hour. Sometimes Inside Out devotes a complete half hour to a subject, but it was not to be. I was, though, extremely grateful to get 15 minutes after years of trying. I'm proud of the fact that the programme, which was aired on the 28th of January 2013, trebled viewing figures. Searching for René was also shown on BBC South and in a modified version on BBC Yorkshire. It must have been viewed by around a million people at least. Not bad for a project constantly turned down. For me, one of the most moving pieces in all of the filming we did was standing on the beach at dusk at West Ender, thinking not only of René's body being brought there by the current, but of the other 90-odd souls, sailors, soldiers and airmen who'd washed ashore there. We also stayed overnight at the Hotel Belleville, constructed of concrete, now mainly apartments, but during wartime, the only building left standing at West Ender, which had been extensively bombed. The story doesn't end there. Fast forward to September 2013. Earlier, I mentioned having remained in touch with Colonel John Powell, who'd been posted to Gibraltar. It transpired that the RAF were considering changing the name of the RAF headquarters from Jaguar Buildings. John mentioned the Mouchot story and René's landing at Gibraltar prior to boarding the President Oudous bound for England. It was then decided to rename the HQ Mouchot Buildings and I was invited for the inauguration, which took place on the 14th of September 2013, the day before Battle of Britain Day, commemorated annually every 15th of September and or on the closest Sunday to that date. Through another stroke of serendipity, 
I have now written about my search for René Machot. Dilip Saka, a professional historian, prolific author, and internationally recognised expert on the Battle of Britain and Spitfire stories, was meeting trustees of the Battle of Britain Memorial Trust at the RAF Club to begin organising a major project. One of the trustees happened to mention my work and the BBC film, which immediately struck a chord, as Dilip had recently produced a new biography on that legendary South African Spitfire ace and fighter leader, Sailor Milan, under whom René served at Biggin Hill. With us communicated by email and found much in common and arranged a visit to Gloucester where Dilip now lives. At the time, I was planning a progress to visit friends in the West Country. Each Christmas sees the Christmas card list get shorter and I wanted to catch up with them before it's too late. I contacted Dilip, arranged the trip and decided to give him one of my two treasured copies of The Diaries of René Mouchot. My sacrifice was a blessing. Dilip took one look, listened to my story and before I knew it, with just one telephone call to pen and sword commissioning editor Martin Mace, minutes later had organised the republishing of the diaries with new appendices, my search and previously unshared photographs from the family archive and elsewhere. And now that vision has become reality. My searching for René has been a wonderful journey. Along the way, I've made friends and become a member of the extended RAF family. Hubert and Marie-Dominique Delisle keep in touch and have been most generous in allowing us to reproduce cherished family photos in the book. I'm very grateful to all who have helped me and given unstintingly of their time. But for them, the story may never have been told and certainly the reproduction of the diaries with extra historical context and the record of my personal journey would not have come to fruition. Thank you all and God bless you, René Mouchot. In conclusion, we give René the last word, who speaks to us years later through his personal testament. If fate allows me only a brief fighting career, I shall thank heaven for having been able to give my life for the liberation of France. Let my mother be told that I've always been very happy and thankful that the opportunity has been given me to serve God, my country and those I love and that whatever happens, I shall always be near her. Further words would be superfluous. <laughs>